When you have a lot of Australians on the staff, you know, it, it wine doesn't stick around for very long. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 121 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking, Aussies stealing wine. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash advice. And I'm... We aren't starting with a review today, and I'll tell you why, because there aren't any reviews. Please, if you do like the show, I would love a review on either iTunes or Stitcher. Okay, the performance probes this week, and probe number one, physiological characteristics of an aging Olympic athlete. Hat tip for Rob for sending this in. This study aimed to investigate the physiological basis of continued world-class performance of a world-class rower who won medals, three gold and two bronze at five consecutive Olympic Games. This Olympic athlete was studied from the age of 19 to 40, maximal oxygen uptake, VO2 max, peak heart rate, blood lactate, and rowing ergometer performance were assessed annually. I know they're talking about rowing, but this is an awesome study because rowing is the sister sport of cycling. They're able to measure in watts and they use VO2 max as a measure. So it is really cool to have a look into someone over this long period of time. During the first years of this athlete's elite career, the VO2 max increased from 5.5 to approximately 5.9 liters per minute. And his average power during six-minute maximal rowing increased from 420 watts to approximately 460 watts, although his heart rate max declined by approximately 20 beats during the 20-year period. That's super interesting in itself. The maximal aerobic power, valued both as VO2 max and six-minute test performance, was maintained until the age of 40. Furthermore, peak lactate levels remained unchanged and average power outputs during 10 seconds, 60 seconds, and 60-minute ergometer tests were all maintained at approximately 800 watts, approximately 700 watts, and approximately 350 watts, respectively, indicating that he was able to preserve both aerobic and anaerobic exercise performances. This case study indicates that until the age of 40 years, a steady increase in the oxygen pulse may have compensated for the significant decline in maximal heart rate frequency. Furthermore, The maintenance of aerobic and anaerobic exercise capacities allowed this Olympic athlete to compete at the highest level for almost two decades. That is commitment because it's not the highest paying sport out there. It's good news for 40-year-olds, but you have to remember that this is 21 years of focused, hard training. If you're 20 right now, it's good news to know that if you just keep training hard, you will still be able to do high-quality performances when you're 40 years old. The second probe this week is Graham Obrey. 
Innovation on two wheels from the IQ2 Cycling Festival. It's a couple of years old now, but the message is timeless. And as semi-pros, I see us at the edge of performance and intrinsically linked to innovation. On the other side of innovation within cycling is the tradition, which can sometimes hold cycling back. And I think Aubrey responds to this well with this quote from this speech. Innovation is about attitude. It's about not accepting mediocrity. It's about not accepting what tradition has handed down to us. It's about wanting to reach for something when you know there is something more or a better way. When you can't see it, but you know and feel like there is a better way or a better something out there, a better way and a completely new way, not a better way for doing the same, but something completely new, then you search for it with an attitude. I really like that quote. It's a little convoluted and a little poorly worded, but the idea that innovation is an attitude is perfect because you just have to be searching and looking for it and want something better. Then you're going to put your energy and effort into pursuing that. My challenge to you then is what are you going to bring to cycling? What innovation can you bring to cycling? What unique traits do you have that you can add to progressing our sport forward instead of just following tradition? What can you bring to cycling? I'd like to put that challenge out to you so that we can contribute to cycling and move it forward together. Alrighty, the nuts and bolts. And this week, it's a rider hot seat. It's something new for semi-pro cycling where someone jumps into the hot seat and I try and answer their questions about their training and riding. The rider is Baron Mendelssohn. I know I've smashed that name. Sorry, Baron. And he's a pretty accomplished biathlete and triathlete, now ditching the run and the swim stuff to ride on the road full time for the next season. He actually has some coaching chops, but wanted to sound out some ideas about his cycling training. So we got together on a call and went through them. But before we get to Baron, I'm interested to know what you think of this format and whether this is something that adds value to you. If it does, then I might get some riders on from time to time to go through their biggest challenges in planning their training, etc. And we can all learn together. Anyway, enough of that. Let's start with Baron and a bit of an introduction of what he's been doing for the past few years. All in probably about five years of trial triathlon and duathlon and then prior to that I did numerous years in the parachute regiment in the army here which is a a pretty fit type unit so I've got that background and then I played semi-pro rugby when I was sort of 17, 18 county athlete and all that sort of stuff so I got quite a bit of background of, of sport it's been pretty continuous but in terms of endurance in terms of you know triathlon duathlon cycling that kind of got serious about five years ago I was bored I needed something to do so I just got into it and then the last two years obviously I represented Great Britain at age group in duathlon it sounds like a whole bunch of variety there as far as activities and things go which is kind of good cool so let's fire away at some of these these questions then I understand, you know, periodizing your training and the importance of your base training, particularly now and stuff like that. But the big thing for me, having raced at the sharp end of of age group, duathlon uh, racing for the last two years, me and my coach worked an awful lot using threshold as an example on my threshold. And the last two winters, we pretty much, yeah, we did knock it, knock the intensity down. And there was a lot of, you know, zone two stuff. But we still carried on hitting a few threshold sessions. There's a few VO2 max sessions, not a huge amount. Looking back, I was looking at my training peaks account. Looking back, I think it was almost like a maintenance sort of as we Mm. went through the months. Now, that's completely contrary 
to, I've now got the Cyclist Training Bible by Joe Friel. And he pretty much, if you look at the plan, he pretty much says, right, from, from your prep phase into base one and base two, there is no intensity whatsoever. And then you start building it into zone three stuff. And then as it goes on to, to the build phases, obviously your threshold, your VO2 max. Now, I've started doing that. I've just, I've just coached myself for the last three or four weeks. And I'm in this supposed prep phase. And I've done no intensity whatsoever. But I was so bored at the weekend, I ended up having to do a Sufferfest session <laughs> because I was just completely bored out of my skull just doing zone two. Do you recommend literally just knocking all intensity up until you need to or having like a maintenance intensity? I definitely periodize where I will reduce intensity, if not take it all out at certain times of the right. year. There's two schools of thought on this, and the one is the maintenance kind of idea where you don't actually lose much fitness, but you also don't peak very high as well. Mm. So you're not going up and down. You're just trying to maintain a fairly high baseline, but there's no sharp build periods where you're building to a peak. It's just maintaining a general fitness. The other side of that is just letting go of all the fatigue that you've built up from mm. an entire season. And part of that is the time off. And then after the time off, this prep phase, I don't think of it as a prep phase for cycling, but I just think about it as a prep phase for actually preparing the body for doing some work and mixing it up a little bit with non-cycling stuff. Right, okay, okay. The idea, if you are doing the periodized plan, to shed the fatigue, so reducing the fatigue right down because two three weeks depending on how long you've been training overall so what your training age is if you take two or three weeks off that's usually enough but then you don't start back on the bike straight away you just do some other physical activities that kind of maintain some type of fitness but don't necessarily give you bike specific stuff right big idea behind this though is you have to be able to quantify your training somehow so you know when to restart again Mm. what you're doing do you use a, a power meter yeah yeah i run a power tap on my bike so that gives you an idea of where you left off the season and where you kind of would be after two or three weeks off a bike and you always want to start the next season higher than you started the last season because that will give you right. enough room to get up to a higher peak which is the kind of the, the overall aim from year to year yeah. So quantifying it like that and then having the acute training load drop right down under 20, if not right down to closer to zero, and then sort of picking it up from that point will mean that you're fresh to go. It sounds like you need this stimulation though. So you need this constant on the go or intensity or, or something to keep you going. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, me and my girlfriend, we did, we did a three week holiday in Florida, um, at the first of September. I use that as my season end, but I still managed to find a local gym and go and do a couple of spin sessions, you know, nothing too, nothing too long, like 40 minutes, an hour, some intervals, you know, um, stuff like that just to keep myself ticking over. So I didn't just drop everything, but I did have periods of three or four days where, I literally did nothing. Hey, I'm on holiday in Florida. So, you know, I wasn't going to rule my life with, with training. So I used that three-week chunk as a break. I've come back. The weather in the UK, so this is my other dilemma, my, the weather in the UK was was very, very good when we came back. So I thought, hey, you know, I've got to just, I've got to take advantage and get some miles under my belt, which I did. You know, I'd go out on a club ride on a Saturday and a Sunday. I'd be doing three, four hours, 50, 60, 70 miles. Not very hard, you know, just kind of relatively easy, long, slow, zone two stuff. 
averaging 17 to 19 miles an hour, which for me is, is, is relatively okay, you know, it's relatively steady, which is kind of contrary, though, to the so-called prep phase and the beginning of your, of your base, which, as you just rightly pointed out, the prep phase is, right, get in the gym, do some cross-training, do some other stuff, do some swimming, do, do, do whatever. So I almost feel that I've been pulled by my weather conditions here. Now, in contrast to now, the weather is just is awful now, and it's raining pretty much every day. So, yeah, I'm doing like zone two on the turbo, which – you know, isn't exactly the most exciting, exciting thing to do. Now, I have specific sessions. My coach from the last two years, which he isn't my coach anymore, you know, I'm, I'm using the sessions that I got in Training Peaks and I'm doing my own sessions. I'm splitting them up so they don't become so boring. But hey, you know, an hour and a half, two hours on a turbo session doing four minute intervals of very, you know, high cadence, low cadence, spin ups, whatever it is can be quite boring <laughs> you know so that's kind of that's kind of where 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 I'm at I'm kind of battling between working on that aerobic base and actually getting some stimulus in an hour and a half on the turbo <laughs> yeah if you take a step back and you think about the actual theory behind periodization itself and you're trying to apply the overload principle so that you're trying to build fitness or increase intensity or volume each week throwing one of those big weeks in there out of nowhere can really throw that plan right out then i guess you're asking yourself whether you hold back for the sake of the plan or like you said you use it as an opportunity to just get some quick miles in yeah for me it comes down to there's a couple of considerations to think about when considering when to do these weeks outside if the opportunity is there and because you want to have that building effect what you're doing with periodization, you're actually adding more and more volume and intensity so that at a certain point, you'll probably hit a cap where your life limits just don't let you do any more, mm. whether that's from work or just mentally or whatever it is, you, you'll hit a limit. So the goal is to try and manage the training load until you get close to your A event. And then in theory, you should be around your maximum in your life hours of training and all that a couple of weeks before that event before you taper or whatever so yeah so throwing in the big week throws that all out right so it, it has the potential to either damage you because you're doing too much load you're adding more than 10 percent or whatever a week mm. so you go into a bit of a hole and it, you might not come out of it or it may take you longer so the actual training effect over time is worse or you just shoot up your training load so quickly from that week that you've got nowhere to go and you either just maintain it or at a certain point you'll start losing it because you have nowhere to go and once it starts nosediving it, it's pretty much gone and it's pretty hard yeah. to get back yeah yeah so it's kind of thinking big picture and mm. balancing the two so whether you think about okay i've got some intensity in my program do you like doing that indoors or you want to do that outdoors i've got some endurance in the program it sounds like that's the type of stuff that you would just want to get outdoors and do some longer yeah. rides or whatever so just choose some part of it but keep some part of it controlled as well because if you just go out and blow it out for one week it could throw the entire plan off right okay yeah yeah i see so it's generally ask yourself whether you have room to keep building after a big week so by looking at the performance management chart seeing what the potential mm -hmm. week will leave you at and do you have room to keep going mm -hmm. because a lot of the time like you said in the question here, you should have done 10 hours according to the plan. You ended up doing 13 and a half. Mm. Can the next week, can you do 14 hours on the trainer? You know, like yeah. can you yeah. go straight into that stuff? And, and if the question's no, then it's, I think personally it's worth holding back a little bit just for that, that peak later on. 
Right, yeah, that that was the big thing for me. I just saw like good weather, and I just thought, hey, you know, I'm not going to limit myself to like nine hours, ten hours when I can do a little a little bit more. So I was kind of battling with that, and hey, I did it. I mean, I did it yesterday. You know, I had an hour session on the turbo plan. The weather was really good. It was sunny, and I thought, well, hey, and I just went out and did two hours on the road. I mean, it was steady zone two stuff. I didn't think it was you know gonna gonna kill me. Um, I mean, this week is on training peaks on my annual training plan this week for example is base one week one so at the moment that's at uh, let's see it's estimating 11 hours and 45 minutes i'm not going to hit that obviously to the minute i mean that would be stupid but I, I it's it's more than the last few weeks whereas i think all the prep phase weeks have all been around about 10 hours so yeah that's straight away going to bump me over the 11.45 by doing the two hours instead of the hour because I've done my sessions, I've set my sessions up for this week's block already. So, so yeah, a bit of discipline, I think, is, uh, is the take home on that. Also <laughs> thinking about it, perhaps trying to do your program in TSS terms, so right, training okay. stress score instead of hours because right. then, then you can get it live on a computer and when you're writing... Um, whether it's indoors or out. So using that as a gauge instead of hours might be easier because it could work in your favor if you want to do some indoors and outdoor stuff together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as I said, it's um, it's just a bit odd going from being coached to like, right, this is what you're going to do, bang, 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 to now, right, you're on your own. I'm doing it on my own using my knowledge and, and, and what sort of experience that I have, which isn't a huge amount in the coaching world. And I think um, when you're dishing the coaching out, as you probably know, it's slightly different to dishing it out to yourself. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> For some bizarre reason, you kind of think about it a hell of a lot more. It sounds bad, not that I'm trying to say that what I dish out, I don't think about, but it's more um, it's more clinical when you're doing it to somebody else. Whereas me, it's like, oh, shall I do that? Or shall I not do that? And, oh, shall I stick that session in? Or oh, I don't know if I feel like that. So, okay, okay, that's, um, that's good. Uh, let's have a quick look at the other bits and pieces. Whilst I'm looking at that, uh, strength and conditioning. I've not done any. Are you, uh, are you a fan of it? Um, I've started doing it because it's kind of everybody's talking about it. I'm reading loads of good research up on it. You know, I'm, I'm trying to hit like two sessions a week. Nothing too hard, like 40 minutes, 50 minutes. You know, at the moment, kind of high reps, low weights, all the basic stuff, squats, deadlifts, uh, lunges, uh, single leg, step up, stuff like that. That's going to benefit the bike, really. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I'm a big fan. Right. So I absolutely believe in it, but for a whole different range of reasons because the science itself doesn't actually directly support it. There's a lot of different information out there in in the different studies that have been done, and some of them can be attributed to just more time on the bike while they're doing the weights training or whatever, you know, so that there's mm. there's nothing conclusive in the science that says yes, this equals this. But there's so many benefits that I see for it. And fundamentally, any strength work goes on top of mobility and stability, and then it's the basis of all movement. So whether yeah. you're talking biomechanically on a bike, so you're in the right place to produce power and not leak any watts or whatever when you're riding, or it's trying to keep you steady for efficiency's sake, even though last week um, I read out a study that was disproving this idea. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, the basis of everything you do in sport, including endurance, power, strength, you know, they're all they're all based on time in the gym. Yeah. There's yeah. the on-bike and off-bike stuff. And so periodizing the off-the-bike stuff 
is I think just as important as sort of the periodized plan on the bike because you want to get from that general to that specific point but while you go through that process you want to go from preparing your body then to building muscle and then to strength and then to power right. so so that's where the reps and the, and the weights actually change depending on what outcome you actually want so if you're starting with light weights and low reps then you're preparing your body more than anything. And then if you want strength, you're going heavy weights and low reps. And then power, you add some explosive movements to it. Right. So kind of plyometric movements with weights on them. And that's that transfer process through the whole thing. So I'm a, I'm a big believer, and it sounds like what you're hitting is the big movements, so squats, deadlifts, anything that knocks off a whole bunch of different hinges, yeah. hips, ankles, like everything. For me, that's, that's perfect. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of all the big of the big lifts. If you like, they don't have to be heavy, but they can. You know, I think they're very very functional. A lot of people use that functional word, you know, for all sorts of stuff these days. But they are, you know, they as you said, they hit multiple multiple muscles. And you know, I, I don't want to be in the gym for an hour and a half. I want to be in the gym for forty minutes, you know, max with a warm up and a cool down. Otherwise, I just get bored. Um, and I think you get your biggest bang for your buck as well. So, you know, a little bit of upper body, some press ups, you know, some uh, bent over rows, just to keep everything and checking your shoulders and stuff but uh but other than that yeah i've been doing that and obviously i'll periodize it so then you know the reps get lower and then the weight gets heavier and then uh, hopefully you get into like a maintenance phase um over the next couple of months and then another another point on that then damien so as you're getting towards the race season are you kind of tapering off the strength training or do you have like a do you just keep it like as a maintenance i start to taper off getting into when adding intensity because i do some on the bike strength stuff as well yeah yeah so i don't generally run those at the same time so i will kind of taper off the off the bike and then change it for on the bike kind of stuff um but in the background i'll try and keep any limiters whether it's mobility or stability or different parts of strength i'll try and keep that going as long as possible throughout the year there are times though when if someone is doing a huge amount of work on the bike there's just no room in the training yeah. schedule and sometimes it has to go like i would prefer that someone did some type of mobility stability or strength work throughout the entire year except for say tapers and race weeks I would be happy with that. Yeah. But it's sometimes yeah. it's just not practical. If if you're doing 25 hours a week on the bike plus you've got a full-time job, there's there's yeah. no way I'm going to throw in the 3 hours of gym plus getting there, getting back, you know, extra stretching, extra prep for food or whatever it is. So it it just doesn't yeah. add anything extra at a certain point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now that's um no, that's good. Another question that I've got here on the email that I sent you, linear periodization as opposed to reverse periodization. I know, for example, the British cycling coach is, uh, is, is big on the reverse periodization. He's got, they do it the other way around. So they'll do their intensity throughout the winter and then do their long, slow stuff uh, as the weather gets better, which to be honest with you, mate, is more, <laughs> is more beneficial to somebody who lives in this part of the world, really, but my understanding is that that really would be, for example, if your goal was long, like serious long distance racing or just long events. So you go into the race period having all that base immediately on tap rather than the base now. Yeah, just just your thoughts, really. I mean, my, my periodization, the way I've done it, the way I followed it, sort of from my knowledge and my experience, you know, linear is the way to go. However, I just like to question the reverse compared to the linear 
purely based on the fact that I can't get out there now and do loads of nice, long, slow, steady miles in this weather. Yeah, so reverse periodization to me is the idea where you start with intensity and you just continue to build out that intensity while adding the zones under those. So you start out, say, with zone four at threshold and you're just building that out longer and then you're adding in the volume or whatever as the season goes on. And you're right, as far as it's probably best for long tours, the big thing is that you're adding intensity or you're maintaining intensity for a lot longer time during a season. So if you start a normal periodization plan, you have two or three base periods and then you have two or three builds, potentially you're only doing a lot of intensity work for three months and then you're having a mini break and then maybe another two months or something. But in reverse periodization, there's potential there. So say you want to talk about preparing, say, for the Tour de France for a professional, they would be starting intensity in probably December. Right. And then just building that intensity all the way through till May, till June, until the tour starts. And then at the same time, they're adding sort of more and more intensity as it's getting closer and closer to the event. So it's not like you're swapping them out so it's not like you're swapping threshold out for base at a certain period later on it's just like you're adding more right okay so for me the biggest difficulty for that is mentally maintaining that intensity all year yeah i can definitely see certain riders that are using this in the sky program cracking at some point because the focus needed to do intensity all year round and the amount that they would probably be doing as well they're going to these training camps and and doing these really big blocks that I'm sure that's all they're good for. Yeah, yeah. So trying to adapt that to someone that's working a bit of an unpredictable schedule. Yeah. It seems like mentally you could handle a lot more intensity or you have been able to handle a lot more intensity traditionally over a winter period. So mm. it's not just that mentally I don't think you could do it or you shouldn't consider something like this, but it seems from the outside, I've never personally done it and I've never coached it, but it seems from the outside that it's just so much extra mental energy needs to go into getting the training right for such a long period of time. I just, I see burnout at the end of that. <laughs> like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, abs- a- absolutely. I just, I thought I'd get your, I'd try and get your thoughts thoughts on it because I was, think- I was sat here the other day thinking, yeah, God, that would, that would actually suit suit us in the Northern Hemisphere a hell of a lot better. You could sit in the garage, do all your intensity for for a few months, and then build on that once the weather starts getting better with um, you know with some serious miles. But um, from what I know and the research that I've read, it, it's all pointing towards the, the tried and tested method. Even though British Cycling and Team Sky obviously are using the reverse, is that linear is kind of the way to go. So yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> Right, uh, a point that I haven't put, that I didn't put on the email, mm-hmm. that I was just thinking, I've just ri- written down here. Okay, so I've obviously come from the duathlon triathlon background, where a lot of my a lot of my intensity, particularly on race day, is measured very specific. You know, like I, I did a half iron distance race in August. I, I worked out exactly what we needed to do. We needed to sit between ninety and ninety five percent of threshold for that eighty uh, k bike. And I knew that I'd be able to run a good half marathon off the back of that. Now, road racing, which uh, is obviously uh, why we're speaking and, and, and which is where I want to go come March, April time, is completely different. Is is completely different. I ride with a couple of guys in the club that I ride, Cat 2s, Cat 3 road races. That, you know, they're very good. 
Um, and they ride completely different. It's just it just seems to be balls out for a few minutes and then relaxing for a few minutes, and it's just up and down, up and down. Now, I come from effectively time trialing, which is right. Let's sit at that power, measure your power, and and let that power out throughout the course. So a lot of the training sessions that I've been used to over the last couple of years have been very much like that. Yeah, I've done traditional thresholds sessions. So, you know, two times 20 or three times 15 or, you know, five times whatever with a couple of minutes rest. Now, in terms of training leading up to road racing, are those sessions still going to be of benefit? I appreciate they're going to help your threshold and they're going to potentially raise your threshold. But the actual racing itself is completely different to time trialing. So do I then need to change slightly the way that my training is? When you look at a power file from a road race, you do see a lot of that, say zone one, and then maybe some threshold, and then a lot of zone five and up, because there are those spikes in activity that are happening. The only time that you'll generally sit at threshold is if you're attacking, or everyone's just putting it in the gutter for a long time, and it's a really tough race. So... When you think about trying to train for road cycling, what do you do? And I don't neglect FTP or threshold. I still believe that you need to, over time, build that up because that's the fundamental nature of, yeah. of cycling, being aerobic. So you, yeah. you definitely need part of that in your year somewhere. I think there was another question that you're asking regarding whether you try and maintain threshold work throughout the year or you try and let it go and for me i I let it fluctuate i let it go up and down by not focusing on it and only using it at certain times of the year definitely there is there is a time and place to train threshold and ftp when it comes to the actual event that you're doing it's more about figuring out exactly what your limiters are so what exactly you need in order to do well in that race and focusing on that at a certain point, as well as having all this other stuff that is just the standard fitness that you need. So, you, you know, you need a high FTP, you need the base in your legs, plus it depending on what your power profile says and what type of rider you are and how you're going to try and win races, then you need to concentrate on whatever part of the fitness that is. Yeah, yeah. So all the other stuff is all base, and even threshold work is base in a way. It's just base for your aerobic engine, just so you mm. can stay in the pack. So you do need to continually build that and keep an eye on the numbers to make sure that you are increasing it over the year, because year on year, that's, that's sort of like part of the goal. Generally, it becomes a secondary goal after a certain time, but right. it's still top of mind when, when you're kind of planning training. So I would include it and build on it just like you do every year, but the difference between the triathlon and time trials and road racing is the short stuff, and depending on whether it's five-minute power that you're lacking or you're really good at or you need the sprint, whether it's a 10-second sprint or a 30-second yeah. sprint, that's the secondary focus that what you should be working on when you're getting closer to races. Right, okay, okay. Yeah, because I, I, I notice, you know, I notice a big difference in my ability when I go riding with good guys. You know, when it comes to, you know, long steady stuff, it's it, it's all good. But, you know, as soon as they, they hit a few hills and, you know, they get out, I'm like, wow, they're off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, because yeah. I, I'm, just, I'm just not used to it. I'm used to, uh, for me, racing, when I get to a hill, I, I, I don't care. I, you know, I'll make sure my power doesn't go over what my power is so I can run off the bike. Whereas these guys don't care. It's like, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to smash up this hill because I want to drop the guys that are behind me. So, 
if they're racing like that, they'll be training like that. And, and I just noticed a big, big difference. It, it, it was honestly, it was like chalk and cheese. And I was really, really shocked. I thought I was quite a good, competent cyclist. And then you go out riding with a road cyclist. It's like, wow, no, I've got a few gaps I need to fill here. <laughs> and and this is all this is all stuff over threshold. Yeah. So at whatever yeah. whatever time it is, it's all that as soon as you start getting over threshold, then this is where the idea of matches comes into it. And you only have a certain amount of matches you can burn over threshold at varying lengths. And yeah. you kind of if you can try and quantify that over time, then you can see a little bit within yourself of what you're capable of and how far you can reach above threshold and then kind of come back and, and recover enough to, to be there at the finish. But if you don't have it yet, then you really need to ride conservatively. You need to ride on wheels, protecting yourself yeah. as much as possible, and then yeah. doubling down on your strengths, whatever whatever they are above that. But it sounds like you need to do a power profile test to figure out exactly where your strengths are and then, and then work on that. So we are in the period of the year, in the off-season, where say you don't have a good sprint, and it sounds like you maybe don't have a good short no. sprint, then no. you would be trying to work on the sprint technique so you're, you're at least have something to fall back on when it comes down to sprinting later on because yeah. maybe five-minute power is the thing that you're going to try and double down on, try and get separation in a break, and then, yeah. then stick on your nice FTP for the rest of the ride and then try and win that way. So um, it would be good knowing now what you're going to focus on later on. So you can pretty much just do the opposite for some workouts um, in the off-season. Right, okay. And that leads me on, as you said, on to, on to testing. Would you, do any, would you be doing any testing right now at all to get any numbers? The tricky thing is testing can sometimes just, you can just go too deep too early because you just don't have the resources to back up from it. Mm. So you can do other styles of tests. But honestly, if you don't, know your zones or they've moved around and you're having trouble identifying what they are there's no way around it at the moment yeah you have to you have to test you know i believe there's some software eventually that's going to come out and it'll be magic because you don't have to test but right now it's the necessary evil and it's horrible it sucks it's hard but yeah no other option. yeah it is kind of hard and 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 yeah like everybody knows they are they are painful and they're desperately more painful when you do it by yourself um, but that's the whole point. And what test would you do? Would you do just your normal threshold test, you know, your 30-minute, and then take the average of the last 20, or or what would you do? What zones do you use for training? As in heart rate zones or power zones? Power zones. You know, I've never gone with power zones. I have just literally worked on a percentage of FTP. So whatever, five times five, times five minutes at 90%. So maybe that's something that I might want to look at introducing. Um, obviously, I get my power zone readout on Training Peaks. It tells you, doesn't it? Yeah. But but I've I've never gone right. I'm going to do a session in you know power zone four or power zone five. It's always been a percentage of my FTP. Yeah. So if if you were looking at power zones, Coggins' power levels are yeah generally pretty good. So then you would just do the test, the 20 minute test with the build up. So his his 20 minute test is like three minutes sort of just building up and then a couple of all-outs and then a five-minute all-out and then a 20-minute all-out. So that that's the yeah. test I would do, yeah. Right, okay, okay, yeah, I'll um, I'll give that a go because I've always just done the, yeah, the 30-minute thir- the with um, hitting the lap button at 10 and then that, the, you know, the next 20 would be, uh, the next 20 would be whatever my percentage is. But I, I find it varies quite a bit depending on how good you're feeling, all that sort of stuff. So, so yeah. 
Um, do you place any emphasis on racing weight at all? I mean, I know that's slightly different. That's obviously linking to nutrition and stuff. But um, I mean, I've obviously been very conscious of it the last two years racing. And luckily, uh, I've lost quite a bit of weight, which has helped. But do you place any emphasis on it? Do you place any emphasis on keeping track of it during your base period? Or do you kind of just think, right, okay, do you know what? We'll get the base out of the way. And then once we start on the build, then we start focusing on riders' weight. Or do you just not think about the weight at all? I do think about the weight. And especially because the majority of the riders that I'm training are kind of at that top level where they're trying to squeeze as much out of themselves as possible. So weight definitely becomes a factor at a certain point. It's not always the top of my mind throughout training throughout the year, though. It may just be a certain point where I see it as a limiter or we've reached as far as we can go in all other areas and we kind of then start getting to that. Because, again, it's it's the mental constraint that it puts on you. You can go down the road of burnout or obsession, and I, I don't like putting athletes in that position, especially because it's it's not a long-term plan for me. So, yeah. so it's kind of periodized in some ways as well where you can start thinking about experimenting a little bit when you're more in a base period than you in a build period because you need the recovery and you need the fuel in order to get the intensity in you can start reducing weight kind of leading up to event an event if you're careful about it and you're doing it in a very controlled way so but when it gets to that point and a person needs guidance based on their own situation i have dietitians that i i recommend or nutritionists that i i recommend to to riders so I personally don't get involved in the very small details of trying to lose the last kilo or whatever it is when someone is sort of struggling and plateauing with their weight or whatever. But yeah. um, I think it's important to think about from, from early on, maybe just having it in the back of your mind though and not acting on it necessarily. If it's a huge limiter, like you're very overweight, then of course that, that would be one of the things that you could you would yeah. address early. But if, if it's sort of just fine-tuning at a certain level then um, I would kind of wait until you really need to because it's really mentally draining to try and maintain that for an entire season. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, for the first time for the first time in all the racing that I've done, I actually did get a nutrition consultation done um, before the, yeah, it was a couple of months leading up to the Duathlon World Championships this year. And I have to say it was one of the best bits of cash that I've spent. It was very, very good. And again, you know, it's a bit like paying for a coach. You know, they're the experts, they're the pros, they tell you, right, okay, this is what we recommend, everything from what you should be eating to, to, to supplements. Um, and I, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was very, very good. And, and also it gives you a bit of, I, I felt it gave me a bit of confidence, like, right, yeah, you know what, you're doing all right with your weight. You know, you don't need to get any skinnier, you don't need to starve yourself. So yeah, I thought that was pretty good. Because the, the other side of this is keeping an eye on your actual power as well. Yeah. So if you were having a drop in weight, you were trying to regulate the power and maintain the power or at least maintain a percentage of it. Otherwise, there's kind of no point. Like this is where obviously it's watts per kilogram that is the, the most important thing to think about here. But if you're sacrificing actual power just to drop some weight, then maybe it's not so good depending on the type of rider you are and, and where you want to win races. This is this thing where, say, Nibali, being a GC rider, he has to get down to five and a half or six percent body fat but um cancellara can kind of get away with seven or eight percent because he's he's doing classics so there's other factors 
to consider as well. Plus, I want to raise the point as well, definitely, that when you're considering a consultation with a nutritionist, I think it's only worthwhile going if you're ready for it. Yeah. Because there's so much you have to do after it if if you're way off track. You know, like it, it, there may be a lot of things you have to change or you should go in with questions or specific problems that they can help you solve. Otherwise, they will just give you a whole bunch of generic stuff and, and in the end, nothing will change. So I think you've got to be ready to accept the message. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Quickly on uh, how, how much data are you... Are you really focusing on when an, one of your athletes uploads their stuff on a training peaks? Because obviously I'm monitoring TSS, I'm monitoring VI, I'm monitoring your power to heart rate ratio. You know, I don't really look at the VAM, the VAM. I, I, I mean, it doesn't really have an awful lot for me. Um, what's per kilogram? Well, I just look at that and go, wow, I'm like seriously off a pro. <laughs> so I just don't, I just don't even bother. That's just like ridiculous. Um, but I do kind of, I personally, I kind of focus on my TSS and I focus on occasionally my, my power to heart rate ratio, you know, to see if that, that ride that I do like a hundred times throughout the year, you know, is it staying in below the 5%, you know, that, that kind of 5% Mm -hmm. threshold. So, um, yeah, my question is, do you pay a lot of attention to it with your athletes? Is it something that an athlete should be looking at themselves and understanding themselves? The biggest area that I use data for outside of just the, the standard ones for planning and things, so the TSS and, and putting it on the performance management chart, is in the areas of matches. So looking at what actual power levels or times relating to certain powers that riders are using during races so that we can train those actually spot on in, in training. For example, I have a mountain biker that I train and we haven't been focusing on a lot of short stuff because we're kind of building up to that point. But every race he does, it comes back and he's he's hitting over 800 watts, say 60 times in, a, in an hour and a half race. Wow. So just having an idea of that's the makeup of the race and then over different courses and, and different places that he's riding trying to figure out when it comes to the actual races that are of, of importance is it the one minutes or he needs two minutes or 30 seconds or whatever mm-hmm. so it's kind of forming the strategy of exactly what someone needs and and that match burning as well whether there's just the normalized power from an event like a mountain bike race really doesn't say that much you have to kind of for me dig in a little bit deeper and figure out okay that first lap was really high so then how did that affect the rest of the race? What, what other times were burning matches and things? So that's kind of one part of it. The other thing is just a pure comparison tool as well. So when looking at intervals over time, I like to look at heart rate and power, cadence, normalized power, just so I can see the comparison over time because it is that aerobic decoupling thing where you want to be able to see the heart rate trend where it flattens out over time instead of just rising with every interval. Yeah. So keeping an eye on that, keeping an eye on the last minute of longer intervals as well to see how the heart is kind of reacting is another thing I look at. So digging into those two elements really help set the strategy and just to see whether someone is getting better. I'm working on in the background a lot of different benchmarking tools, but these are sort of different calculations that I've come across and I'm trying to figure out how to work them into my system and they're not quite there yet. It's more being able to judge fitness over time without having to strictly do tests over time and and just look at the progress that somebody's making. And one of those is like aerobic decoupling that you talk about. So yeah. in the base period, doing aerobic decoupling to see where that 5% period 
ends and then whether that's expanding over time so you know someone's base is getting better and their adaption to to the longer miles they're doing is actually happening i like using it in that regard so it's actual numbers it's easy for me to see what's happening it's easy for the person themselves to be convinced that the training's working and then you know willing to to maintain that trust and, and keep the process going I can spend hours um, going through doing this stuff, which is, yeah, the thing I have to do is pull myself back and think what is the most important thing from this ride that I want to look, whether it's an adaption that I was after, it's what type of um, efforts were needed during the actual race, and then just focus on that stuff because then everything else in some ways falls away because it's it's not as important and it's being collected anyway by the performance management chart and, and other areas. Yeah, yeah. Everybody right now, particularly up in this part of the world, we're all going to be either trying to miss the bad weather and go out for a ride or we're going to be sitting in, in the garage on the turbo doing our doing our base. So instead of going out and doing a two, three-hour ride, which would be of benefit, nice easy zone two, let's say you're only, you're only subject to doing an hour on the turbo, would there be any benefit of hitting a certain zone that would have a far greater bang for your buck than just sitting there with your with your your, your laptop in front of you watching a movie and just pedaling away aimlessly. I.e. sweet spot sessions um, instead of just your bog standard sitting. That, that, that's what I'm saying, really. And then he, without asking you to give a specific session, is there any theory that you might be able to use to give you that little bit more bang for your buck in this base period? than uh, over, let's say, an hour, hour and a half on the turbo, which is about as long as most people can endure, or compared to going out on the road. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. Um, No. (laughs) Right, there you go. That's it. (laughs) No, I'm not not entirely convinced of it. Um, Okay. So I believe that each zone has their place and time, and if you were to avoid zone two, then down the road, then you would find that you just don't have that base. So when you think about zone two, and when I think about zone two, I think you need minimum two hours in zone two to have a training effect because the load isn't that high that you need that extra time in order to have that overtrained element to to your training. So to get around that, sweet spot and tempo and things have been brought up as as an alternative, but I'm, I'm just not convinced. But to get around that in a practical sense, I know someone that's been very successful over the last three years that in winter they may do four or five mornings of one and a half hours in zone two. So it's right on that limit that you're talking about. It's right on that kind of hour to an hour and a half where it's, Mm. um, it's, it's, yeah, mentally it's tough to to sustain it or whatever. But actually sustaining zone two is very hard and to do a a lot of it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And to do a lot of it, it's harder than harder than you think. But I don't see any way that an hour at zone three is going to replace two hours at zone two. Right, yeah. I, yeah, okay. I just don't see it. Maybe you need to think about if on a trainer is slightly harder, it feels slightly harder because it's the continuous motion or whatever, then an hour and a half would be probably the equivalent of two hours in some ways. You know, I, I don't have any way to quantify this, but if you're going to do anything then just try and max out and only do it for say four or six weeks and then you can move on yeah outside of outside of that it's kind of going back to what i we were talking about with the zones that you need during a race you definitely need zone two on its own during a race and there's not a lot of zone three in races in road races themselves yeah so training just training zone three doesn't really work for me 
when it comes to specifically road racing? Yeah, because it's, it's having that balance, isn't it? It's having that balance throughout the week. So, you know, I plan my week, I've planned my blocks, you know, my four-week blocks. I've looked at the week and obviously try to increase the, the, the volume as and when the plan dictates to increase the volume as part of the annual training plan. And, you know, you've got some weeks, for me, for the hours that I've inputted that are suitable to my life and my lifestyle, you know, like a big volume week is goes up to about 16, 17 hours, which is which is quite a lot for somebody that works full time. I know there are guys out there that, that, that are doing 20, 25, but that's just, that's that's one in a lot of people that mm. can actually do that. Um, but to hit those, let's say to hit that 14, 15 hours, you know, you, you're talking of more than one hour a day, Monday to Friday, plus if you're lucky, three or four hours on a Saturday and three or four hours on a Sunday. So then you're, you're back to the realms of, wow, I need to kind of hit an hour and a half to two hours on that turbo, you know, Monday and Wednesday and Friday, and then maybe do an hour on Tuesday and Thursday, and then maybe bump the hours up with a bit of strength training. So it's just, yeah, it's just trying to, trying to get the, what I'm trying to say is trying to get the biggest bang for your buck, shall we say, but as you said, there isn't there isn't uh, there isn't a way to get your biggest bang for the buck other than sitting there and doing whatever you need to do. I haven't been convinced of all of these other ways time crunched cyclists for yeah. for longevity for yeah. someone yeah. that wants to build a real base that's going to serve yeah. them well over the years. Any intensity is easy come, easy go. So yeah. there's no way you can sustain very very high intensity in replacement. And it's it's kind of similar with zone three and, and zone two as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, the zone two sessions that I'm doing, obviously I, I split them up, you know, just to break the boring monotony of it. So I'll do something like a four minutes at 90 RPM and then, you know, uh, four minutes at 75 RPM, a little bit heavier, focus a little bit more on on, on that kind of that, that stronger um, pedal stroke and then four minutes at 90 with a few minutes recovery and just repeat that, you know, make it into a 15 minute cycle just to just to break the monotony up of that hour and a half on the turbo. Because otherwise, you know, you know what it's like, mate. You, you sit there for an hour and a half, and you you, you just feel like committing suicide. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, um, it's... Trainer Road is really good at this as well, though. Oh, okay. So Trainer Road um, has inbuilt skills elements as well to their Zone Two rides and Zone Three rides, I think, as well. Um, oh. Whether it's sort of practicing your balancing on the bike, standing up, yeah, um, yeah whether it's getting into a more aero position or whatever it is so it's 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 all the things you're talking about but they're guiding it through you so you don't have to kind of you don't have to think about it beforehand right right okay yeah i might might have to have a little look at that i mean the other thing for me was you know i was thinking well what i could do is i could stick on a sufferfest video which you know i i think are great because the time really does fly but not hit the intensity so just use it to help me break up the hour and a mm. half keeping in that zone too but just, you know, when they do a sprint, I'll just do something completely different. When they do a hill climb, I'll get out the saddle, but I'll make sure that my intensity, just, you see what I mean? So using it to kill the time, but making sure that I'm disciplined with keeping that intensity where I want the intensity. So that hour and a half goes super quick instead of sitting there thinking, oh, wow, you know, what am I going to watch next on the yep. internet? Yep. Yep. No, exactly. <laughs> so, yep. um, okay, one of the kind of last type questions I've got, drills and speed work. I've got that planned in. I, I know that Joe Frill talks a lot about it in his book, and I've scheduled a couple of those. He likes to have those scheduled in within the prep phase and within the early base. Single leg drills, spin-ups, um, stuff like that. Are you a fan of them? Should we be using them? I, I think they're relatively easy sessions to do. 
they can kill the time quite quick, especially with single leg drills. You know, by the time you've done your right leg, your left leg, both legs, you know, you've killed like five, six minutes and you repeat that a few times. That's a session pretty much done. However, I notice on those kind of speed sessions and, 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 and the drills, my heart rate isn't really tested. It doesn't really pop up into zone two very much, you know, because, you know, how, how are you on a single leg drill, really? Thoughts on that? I absolutely believe in them. Okay. I think they're incredibly important. And in your situation, I think they're even more important because you have come from a running background. Yeah. Where running can actually kill leg speed. Yeah. So using these just to get your body used to the actual cadence and the efficiency that it produces, I think they're super important. And it's a skill session. You, you can't think about it as a physical um, adaptation okay. session, really. Yeah. There, yeah. there are parts of it, but you're not putting much weight on the pedals. Um, yeah, you're not getting much above zone two or three. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the point. So you can concentrate on the actual movement itself, and then you can refine that over time. There's no other time in the season where you will do them because later on time becomes so valuable that they are a bit of a waste of time. So yeah. doing them now while you have some time on your hands is definitely I I I recommend just yeah keep doing them. Yeah, yeah, no no I have and and they they are a bit alien to me, but over the last sort of 3 or 4 weeks I have felt that I'm improving. I'm not bouncing up and down the saddle too much and the spin-ups anymore. I'm managing to maintain that that high cadence. But yeah, they they're just kind of I mean they're good. They as I said they break a session up really really well. So if you if you if you've got one of those turbo aversions that you're like oh wow what are, you know I really don't want to go on a turbo anymore I find they do help massively because you're always doing something you're always thinking about something so so yeah that's um that's good so so mate I think that is pretty much everything no doubt I'll think of something in in the next couple of hours but uh, I think that's pretty much everything that I've I've had to ask. So I hope you got something from that. We may check in with Baron as he moves through the season to see what he has learnt about cycling other than the switch from triathlon to cycling is tougher than he expected. But if this is something you're into and something you might want to jump on a call and be recorded for, then get in contact with me at damien at semiprocycling.com. Now, the tech hacks and products section. This week it's a product from Trigger Point performance therapy they are famous for their rollers and this one is a new version which is a handheld foam roller they got two versions one called the grid stk and the other one is the grid stk x which are smaller versions of trigger points grid roller i don't know if you've seen the grid roller but it is a beast it's a really sturdy piece of equipment that is going to smash your muscles when you're getting down and trying to do some myofacial release the Difference with a handheld roller compared to one on the ground is that one on the ground uses the floor as the pressure, but this is your hand. So it's a stick with the roller in the center. The hands stay the same, but the roller enables you to move up and down on your muscles with your hands. It's especially useful if you're unable to get on the ground and use it for whatever reason. You can just sit in a chair or whatever and then go to work on any part of your body that needs some work to be done. It's actually a little more travel friendly as well. I don't know if you have seen the small grid roller, but it's still a beast. It's still super bulky, even though it is kind of tiny and chopped off. But the grid roller is so much thinner and smaller that it would be a lot easier to pack. 
So like I said, it's available in two variations, the Grid SDK and the Grid SDKX. They're going to retail for 35 bucks and 40 bucks respectively. So if you are looking to portableize your roller game, I definitely get on the website and check out these products. And now to that quote from the top of the show, it is Johnny JV Vorders. Here's the rest of that clip because it is pretty funny. I had a couple years ago some very, very expensive Premier Cru champagne uh, that I was bringing back, and, and I and I went out to the bus one day on the rest day, and everyone's sitting around, you know, clearly a little buzzed watching a football game, and uh, and there they were drinking drinking some very expensive champagne out of plastic cups. That <laughs> so now I now have a special sticker that has an Australian flag and a line through it that I stick onto all wine. That, oh. I do like JV. He has a mad rep as a control freak and a bit of a hothead, but you can't deny that he is an absolute boss and he has put together one of the premier teams in the world. So something is definitely working there and there's lots of lessons to take from how he does things. So I am looking forward to seeing how he rolls it out with his new bike partner, Cannondale, and we'll see what happens in the 2015 season. I'm especially looking forward to seeing what they do with their kit. And that's it. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash advice to find any links used in this week's episode. From there, you can click on any coaching link on the site or visit semiprocycling.com forward slash coaching for more information on our coaching packages but till next week get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box whichever one you're into